And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I mean, it's a natural question. Why should I trust the Gospels, right? I mean, uh, these are ancient documents, ancient stories, uh, far removed from us by distance and culture. And at some time or other, any diligent reader of Scripture is going to begin asking some questions. Why can I trust these testimonies, these stories, um, these proclamations of good news. Well, my guest, Dr. Lydia McGrew, is uh, author of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. Uh, She's also, in fact, she's joined us once before on this program, defending the reliability of the Gospels and the Book of Acts in her book, Hidden Plain View, Undesigned Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts, And she is a widely published analytic philosopher, author, wife of philosopher and apologist Timothy McGrew. She received her doctorate in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995 and has published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and in its application to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She defends the uh, integrity of the Gospels. And uh, Dr. McGrew, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Al. It's great to be here. This, you, you, what I love about the work that you do is you don't, you're not looking from necessarily outside the, the Gospels to verify what's in the Gospels. You actually give a close reading to the Gospels and find things there that point uh, to, well, these are believable stories. Why did you go that route? Well, I wanted to revive some older views of the Gospels from even the 19th century. My husband drew my attention to this uh, some years ago, and that got me started with Hidden in Plain View, where what they did was they tried to take what we might call common sense and apply that here. What would we expect to find if these really did come from uh, people who were in the know, who were friends with Jesus and who really knew what they were talking about? And then the interesting thing is, when we go, we actually find that. So in a sense, we're using things from outside, but they're not these highly critical yeah. tools where we're starting by assuming that they're not true and, and maybe getting a few little grains of truth out of them. Instead, we're taking for a real test drive the theory that they are coming from people who really know what they're talking about and applying that common sense to them, and it's a very fruitful method. Well, tell us, what is the lesson of your first chapter? Location, location, location. Right. Well, that's something that I didn't do in Hidden in Plain View. These are what are sometimes called external uh, confirmations, 
And here they come from the locations that are mentioned in the Gospels, things like geography Mm -hmm. or um, rulers and that kind of thing. And what you discover is that even in these teeny little details, like the fact that Cana is in the hills and Capernaum is uh, down actually somewhat below sea level, and John just casually says they went down Mm -hmm. from Cana to Capernaum, you know, you find them talking like they really know those places. Yeah. do obscure place names uh, pop up? They they do. I mean, Cana itself very obscure. It's okay. something that, you know, if John was writing in Ephesus, I doubt that his readers there were going, oh, yeah, I know Cana. You know, he's <laughs> this, this little tiny city, you know, like someone here in Michigan mentioning, I don't know, Climax, Michigan or something that uh, somebody outside Michigan might never have heard of. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do, I mean... Do they get? Let's take let's take um, Luke for instance. Uh, does he get the rulers right that he refers to? He does, and it's, it's particularly astonishing when he refers to rulers that maybe are scholars at first thought didn't exist, and then in one case they they learned that he did. So there was this a guy named Lysanias. And Luke mentions him in the beginning verses of Luke 3. Well, the only Lysanias that we had heard of for a long time had died long before the time of Christ, you know, decades before. And they thought, oh, you know, Luke just made a mistake. And then there was an archaeological discovery of this uh, inscription that indicated that there was another Lysanias that actually lived during the time of John the Baptist and the time of Jesus. He could have even been the, the other guy's son. You know, so Luke got it right after all. Wow. What about names like Pilate, uh, Herod, Antipas, uh, Herod's brother Philip? Do we have references outside the text to those names? We do. Uh, in Josephus, for one, um, you know, the Jewish historian. And the interesting thing there is that you really see Luke's historical intention, where he's mentioning both more famous and less famous rulers, all just to uh, pinpoint the year when he says, uh, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, that would be John the Baptist, in the wilderness. It's like, boom, 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 boom. When all these people were reigning, that's when John the Baptist started his ministry. So there's no question of Luke trying to write something mythical or legendary. He is really locating it precisely in history. Yeah, in the prologue to his gospel, he makes seems to make a big deal about checking all these things out with the eyewitnesses and those who are ministers of the Word. Um, and I assume we ought to take him at face value there, right? I think we should, and the great thing is that we don't even have to just kind of be naive and go, oh, well, you know, if he says he's telling us the truth, I guess he must be. But we can say, well, does it look like he's telling yeah. us the truth? Yeah, and when we look, it, it turns out that it does look exactly like that. Yeah. Um, you talk about uh, undesigned coincidences, and um, that was also in your, your earlier book. But what is an undesigned coincidence? It's an incidental fitting together of details that points to the truth of both stories, even when they come from different sources or different people. 
I like to give a, a made-up example. If you had two people who said that they saw a bank robbery, and one of them said, hey, the, the guy tripped when he was running away, and then the other uh, person claiming to be a witness said, so I looked at him and his shoe was untied. Those two stories would fit together, even though they're different people telling these different things. But, yeah, why did he trip? Because his shoe was untied. So they're not trying to make their stories fit together. They're just both telling the truth, and that's why their stories fit together. So do we see that kind of uh, fitting together between the Gospels? And John's Gospel, which is, you know, not one of the synoptic Gospels. Yeah, that's what's really interesting is that they don't even always tell the same stories, and yet they can fit together um, even in different stories. So I'll, I'll give an example. This one wasn't in my earlier books. This new example in this book, um, in the Synoptic Gospels, we have the story of Bartimaeus and his friend, the two blind men who are healed by Jesus in Jericho, and it says they... I uh, heard a you know, loud noise of all the crowd coming, and they said, what's happening? And the people said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. They immediately began to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us and help us. And, and they come to Jesus, and he asks what they want. They say that we may receive our sight. Now, what you might not notice is that in the uh, Synoptic Gospels, we haven't seen any account of a miracle performed that far south near Jericho, in the synoptics, they focus on Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee. So how did they know to where they got so excited right away? Well, you go over to John's Gospel, he doesn't have that story about those blind men, but he has a story about a different blind man about six months before that, who was born blind that Jesus healed right in Jerusalem, which is closer to Jericho. And also he raised Lazarus from the dead. Those stories were really uh exciting to people in that vicinity. Very plausibly, that's how those two blind beggars in Jericho thought to themselves, hey, maybe this guy can help us. So those are totally different stories, and yet the one helps to explain the other. Yeah. Uh, Is there any particular gospel writer that kind of has more undesigned coincidences than others? I find that John, if you just count them up, probably has the most. And my theory about the reason for that is that uh, he tells so much unique material. So in a sense, I say the more John tells us, the more he gets confirmed, which is not what critical scholars think. They want to say just the opposite, you know, that he's making up more stuff. But actually, we find that precisely because he's saying, uh, telling different things, then he fits in these subtle ways with the synoptics. But they do all have them, and in different directions. I'm just curious from the standpoint of of, uh, academic scholarship on this, um, is there a new respect for for this kind of close reading? It really depends on who you ask. Okay. You know, Um, you know, I would say among the sort of self-consciously critical scholars, take someone like Bart Ehrman, who's a skeptical scholar. Um, No, he doesn't have any new respect at all. (laughs) But, um, But I'd like to say that within the Christian community, I'm hoping I'm doing my small part along with other scholars, like there's a, a British scholar named Peter J. Williams, who uh, is, has a book called uh, Can, Can We Trust the Gospels, you know, doing some similar things, mm-hmm. where I'd like to say we're giving people uh, a stiffer backbone 
to to say no you know you actually you don't have to make concessions you actually can defend these things as honest reportage yeah how significant is debates about dating the gospels um in some ways dating Estimates have gotten less extreme to where, you know, you won't really find scholars putting John away in the second century or whatever. Um, But I I don't think we always need to nail the dating down precisely, and I think John's a good example. If it was in fact written by a disciple of Jesus who had an excellent memory, then if he's writing before the uh, fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, or if he's writing in his old age in A.D. 85, as long as we can tell that he really is an eyewitness and he really remembers things well, it's more the authorship that matters yeah. than the exact dating. Gotcha. Dr. Lydia McGrew, my guest. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Lydia McGrew, uh, author most recently of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. And again, uh, she does a very close reading of the gospel texts and points to details that um, don't make sense if the stories were simply inventions. Um, You mentioned unnecessary details, uh, for instance, Dr. McGrew. What do you mean by unnecessary details? Well, what I mean is that they are not essential to the narrative, and that gives the narrative a sound like as if you were talking to, let's say, uh, a, a Gulf War veteran who's telling you about his experiences, that kind of natural oral history we humans just tend to mention unnecessary things. So an example in the in the Gospel of Mark would be uh, when Jesus is asleep in the boat and there's a storm and the disciples are afraid. It says he was sleeping on a pillow. Now that pillow <laughs> is not, it doesn't feature, you know, that cushion doesn't have any other role. And I don't think it has some, you know, symbolic value or anything. He's just for sleeping on a pillow. Yeah. And that's what Peter remembered and probably told Mark. You also point to the story of the raising of Jairus's daughter. Tell us about that. Well, in in the raising of Jairus's daughter, we have um, these details where, for example, there are flute players. They're they're there um, in the in the book of Matthew, mm-hmm. and you know they must just showed up, you know, hoping for a gig or something because <laughs> <laughs> you know we we actually find in the Talmud that it that it says to have you know, flute players at a funeral to show that you, uh, you know, esteemed the person or whatever. So these little things, again, they fit with what we know of the culture at the time, and yet they're not essential to the story. Rather, they're the kind of things these these eyewitnesses remembered. And I want to notice here, as a person with a doctorate in uh English literature, the ultra-realistic novel that we are so familiar with was not going to be invented for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had fiction, but it wasn't like our fiction where every little detail is described or anything like that. The Gospels 
authors would have had to invent a non-existent genre that then fell back off the map for over a thousand years thereafter. Uh, and the better and simpler explanation is that they really got this information from eyewitnesses or were themselves eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You also referred to unexplained illusions. What are they? Yeah, that's a that's a new argument in this book, um, not in hidden in plain view. So if if I were telling somebody about a car accident and I said um, I was on my way to a KSO concert and this guy rear-ended me, and I just move on and tell about you know how rude the the guy was who rear-ended me or whatever, and I'm not reflecting on the fact oh this person lives in Colorado and and he doesn't know what a K- KSO stands for Kalamazoo Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and I'm so busy telling my story that I just get on I don't stop to explain that, and we find that same mark of uh, un, unconscious witness testimony, where they have their eye and their audience at every moment, like in a literary production, they're just trying to tell what happened. So an example in John, he says um, that the disciples of John the Baptist were having an uh, argument with someone about purification, and then they came to John the Baptist, and from then on, all we get is they complain about Jesus making more followers than John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. We literally never get back to what that dispute was about. Specifically, was it a follower of Jesus? What were they arguing about purification? Nothing. It just gets dropped. That's because John the Evangelist knows that that was really how that that argument got started and really why they came to John the Baptist. But then he wants to get on to John saying, he must increase, I must decrease, so he drops the dispute. Mm -hmm. That's an example of an unexplained illusion. Yes. Um, And you mentioned this is a a new category that you've discovered. Um, What about, you, you write about the Sons of Thunder, uh, mm-hmm. James and John. I've always thought that was a funny, uh, a funny designation. Uh, do we have any further? <laughs> do we have any explanation of this nickname? Not explicitly. I mean, people have theorized that it might have been, you know, related to when they called upon. Uh, they asked Jesus if they should call fire down from heaven. Now, um, sometimes an unexplained allusion is what I call one half of an undesigned coincidence. It's like unexplained in that document, and then you go somewhere else in another document, you find an explanation. Um, but we don't know. It could have just been that they were rowdy. I mean, these were all fairly young men. You know, I think I've known some teenage boys that could have been called Sons of Thunder. Yes. You know, and yeah. so all Mark is interested in is just telling you that that was their nickname, and then he just moves on. He doesn't pause like you might expect in a literary production to say, and the the story behind that, blah, 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 blah. He's just listing Jesus' disciples and giving their nickname when he happens to know it. Should, can we assume that that nickname was something that would have been apparent to the original audience? Uh, not even necessarily. I mean, uh, maybe some members of them knew if they were in a dialogue situation, they could have said, uh, excuse me, Peter, you know, why, if it's an oral, you know, why, why were they called that, you know? Um, but I think the more interesting thing is that the author himself doesn't necessarily mind whether his audience knows 
the explanation because he's he's going somewhere else. In this case, with Mark, he's listing the rest of the apostles, you know, or with John, he's he's wanting to tell you what John the Baptist said about Jesus and how humble John the Baptist was. And so that shows they're not polishing it. So even if the yeah. original audience didn't know, they're not in there going, oh, i got to edit that out. This audience isn't going to know what I'm talking about. Right. They're just telling it as it occurs to them. That's right. That's right. You also referred to unexpected harmonies. Give me uh, an example or two. Or what is it? What are they, first of all? Yeah, well, you know, uh, critical scholars hate harmonization. When you have an apparent or alleged contradiction, and then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, actually, that, that, that can work. That's not necessarily a contradiction. But in real life, uh, that's often true, you know, where you'll say, oh, I think I don't think that could have really happened that way because it seems to contradict this other thing. Then it'll turn out it really did, and there's something you never thought of. So I, I do a lot in that chapter with Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when uh, in Luke, he reports Jesus as saying, uh, you know, don't leave, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for uh, for the coming of the of the Holy Ghost. Um, well, you know, it's like in Matthew, it mentions that they went to Galilee. So, of course, skeptics will bring that up. They'll go, "Hey, did they disobey him? You know, why did they go? Why did they go to Galilee? What does it mean? Don't leave Jerusalem." But then, when you read John, you John kind of brings together Matthew and Luke, although he doesn't, you know, say he's doing that. Obviously, I don't think he was trying to do that. But you have Jesus appearing to them in Jerusalem at first. Then they go up to Galilee, and uh, they see Jesus there. Then we learn in uh, the first chapter of Acts that they were back down near the Mount of Olives. So they traveled. He was with them, as Acts tells us, for 40 days. So there was plenty of time to walk back and forth. That's an unexpected harmony that you can actually fit it all together when you you get up uh, high and you get the big picture. Uh, you also have a chapter on unified personalities, and your first point is that real people are hard to fake. They really, really are. You know, if you ever binge-watch television show, you'll go, hey, you know, if that guy is really so kind and sensitive and, and serious, you know, why does he do this other insensitive thing over here in this other show or whatever? Um, and even with all the resources we have now for um, being careful like that, you still get variations among writers of different episodes. But in the Gospels, what we find are several very striking personalities across uh, different stories, different Gospels, and yet it's clearly the same guy. Like, Peter is a really good example yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, explain that, because he, well, is, so he is a character of, that's given a lot of attention. He is, he is. He's, you know, probably the most prominent disciple. So an example I like to give is that Peter likes to argue. And yet he likes to argue because he loves Jesus. So it's this very striking characteristic of what I think of as loving argumentativeness. So in the synoptics, Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And Peter pulls him aside and he says, no, Lord, you got it wrong. You're not going to die. That, that, would, that would be terrible. Of course, Lord, you're not going to die. And Jesus is like, get thee behind me. So, you know, he really right. rebukes him. But 
even though Peter needs, in a sense, to be rebuked, why does he say that? Because he loves Jesus so much. He can't bear the thought of him dying. Well, now we go over to um, John, and Jesus wants to wash his feet. And Peter goes, no, no, you're never <laughs> going to wash my feet, right? That's because right. Because he's offended, because it was such a lowly, only slaves wash people's feet, you know, and Peter can't stand that thought. Well, again, it's because he loves Jesus so much, but it's a completely different story. You know, or when Jesus says, you're all going to forsake me tonight, and, and Peter says, I'm not me, you know, even I'll never forsake you, Lord. And there's this very touching moment in uh, in John where Jesus says, you, you will follow me, but you can't follow me now. And Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I'll die for you. And, you know, even though we know he didn't stick to that, he did deny him later, again, there's that loving argumentativeness, that tenderness of heart. And I think that's why... Peter was able to be restored after Jesus' resurrection. Yeah, and and, and it's amazing that kind of uh, extravagant personality, warm-hearted though. Um, to, 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 to Peter's walking on the water uh, story ex- expresses this as well. Um, I, I this consistency. Um, what do what do critical scholars do with this kind of consistency? You know, I hardly ever see them talking about it, but the closest you can get, there's a sort of assumption that we already know that these things are at least partially fiction. And so then they can attribute pretty much any degree of brilliance and creativity and in making up fiction to the authors because they've sort of already made up their minds that it's fiction, to the point that it never occurs to them how implausible this is, um, that they would tell such completely different stories yeah. and yet portray the same person in such a, uh, a consistent but varying way. They're not, they're not really interested in seeing that there because they think they already know they're made up. Yeah. Well, so what do they do then with kind of the explicit, te- explicit testimony, Luke's prologue, uh, which makes it clear he's not doing fiction here, and also in John where he says, uh, "I witness," and then First John. Uh, yeah, and First what do they Peter, make of that? Where he, we didn't follow cleverly designed people. Yes. You yeah. know, it's it's an astonishing point that that doesn't bother them more. It's it's a sort of an assumption of an agenda, like almost as if these are, in a sense, hoaxes. Uh, you know, they're trying to present <laughs> themselves as true, but they're not really true. Yeah. Uh, another possibility is that, well, everybody just knew that that was just the way you talked. In- you know, you talked like you were making a, a real story, yeah. but uh, not really. Okay. Dr. McGrew, thank you again. Wonderful talking with you. It's been great, Al. Thank you so much.